0: Welcome to the Weekly Appellate Report. I'm Brian Cardile. This is the Daily Journal's weekly podcast featuring commentary and insights on salient appellate law developments. Our show this week will regard a couple of areas of evolving doctrine within the context of the Constitution's First and Second Amendments, and we'll look at how some recent California case law, as well as rulings in other jurisdictions, bear upon that evolution. The First Amendment-related question arose in a First District Court of Appeal ruling last Thursday, which related to anonymous internet speech, and particularly the sort found on online review sites like Yelp or TripAdvisor. There, answering a question that remains fairly nebulous within California jurisprudence, the court needed to decide just what sort of showing a defamation plaintiff—here a company attempting to sue former employees for their anonymous negative reviews on the site class door— needs to make in order to compel the online platform where the reviews are made to reveal the identities of the posters so that the plaintiff could bring defamation claims against the posters directly. The court adopted authority from the 6th District Court of Appeal and decided that such plaintiffs must make a prima facie showing of defamation with enough substantive evidence to show their claim could succeed on its merits. But our first guest, Paul Allen Levy, a public citizen who filed an amicus brief in the matter, contends that the court should have adopted a higher standard and one, he says, is the prevailing majority test in these contexts, which requires an additional step beyond the prima facie showing a final balancing of equities, which he says would protect anonymous speakers in instances where the value of such protection is especially high. For instance, current employees who might fear attribution anonymously whistleblowing about things in the public interest. That additional balancing test would require plaintiffs to show not only do they have a case, but the equities weigh in their favor suggesting that they should be able to bring it. I'll then hear from David Kopel, Research Director for the Independence Institute in Colorado and Associate Policy Analyst for the Cato Institute, about a notable Second Amendment ruling out of the D.C. Circuit this week that bears some similarities with the recent Ninth Circuit guns case Peruda versus San Diego County. In both cases, plaintiffs challenged regulations requiring individuals to show some sort of good cause before being able to carry firearms in public, though, as Kopel will note, the D.C. regulation was perhaps a bit more stringent than California's law, unlike the Ninth Circuit, which upheld that could cause requirement a 2-1 D.C. circuit struck down the regulation at issue there, creating, if not a direct circus, but at least some additional uncertainty about the contours of the Second Amendment as it pertains to public firearm carry. Though the U.S. Supreme Court denied cert in the Peruta case, it seems like this question might need high court review sooner rather than later. Before we hear from my guest, let me first remind you, as always, that CLE Credit is available to listeners of the podcast. Just find a link to a short true-false test on the dailyjournal.com page where this program appears. Without further ado, then, I'd like to welcome in Paul Levy of Public Citizen, who filed an amicus brief in the 1st District Court of Appeal case, Zeal Technology vs. Doe. Mr. Levy, though this case revolves around anonymous online speech, and certainly when folks think about potentially actionable anonymous speech nowadays, internet message boards come to mind first, but uh, the law relating to anonymous speakers and defamation must predate the internet, I presume, right? Uh, could you walk me through uh, some of that history?
1: The original cases involved leafleting. So the first case that I know of is a case from um, the late forties, early fifties, Tally versus California, in which leaflets, unsigned leaflets, were distributed, if I remember correctly, by civil rights groups uh, protesting some sort of discrimination. And they were prosecuted under, if I remember correctly, a California law that forbade the dissemination of anonymous leaflets. And the Supreme Court uh, said that the prosecution violated the First Amendment. uh, And there were other cases, but the, the the most important one was decided by the Supreme Court in McIntyre versus Ohio Election Commission, which involved a leaflet disseminated by somebody who was opposing. If I want to, if I remember correctly, it was opposing a bond issue. Uh, and uh, there was an Ohio statute that forbade anonymous leafleting, and the Supreme Court struck it down as a violation of the First
0: Amendment. So then this corner of First Amendment law has has had some light shined into it before the existence of these online platforms where folks leave yes. reviews. Um, right. But obviously uh, that th- this sort of case... Um, must be becoming more common, and I guess particularly the question at issue in the case that we'll speak about, the ZL Technologies case. Uh, Maybe also setting a bit of context. You've written about a a case from a few months ago in the the California Sixth District Court of Appeal, just sort of relating to the rights that the online platform itself has, right, and and sort of protecting the anonymity of the the folks that are posting on it, whether they have standing to protect those rights. Is Is that right?
1: Right, that's that's right, that's the Machine Zone case, uh, or Glassdoor Inc. versus Superior Court, where Machine Zone was a real party in interest. There, well, I mean, the, the main point of the case was a rejection of Machine Zone's argument that Glassdoor lacked standing to appeal based on the First, free speech and anonymity rights of its users, and the California Court of Appeal said, uh, no, Glassdoor has every right to stand up for the anonymous, the rights of its users to speak anonymously, both because uh, uh, Glassdoor had a relationship with the users that made it sense for Glassdoor to appear on their behalf, and indeed, Glassdoor had its own interest in anonymity because, after all, if people knew they couldn't post anonymously, you'd have a lot fewer people willing to
0: speak out against their employers or, fir- or former employers. So, bring up to speed then in the case uh, we're talking about that was ruled upon last week, Glassdoor is again a party here where folks leave reviews of former or past or present employers. Uh, so, it, here we have... ZL Technologies, is that employer upset about a particular review or a series of them and brings suit in California court? Um, walk me through kind of the, the procedure that happens next.
1: So it, it, this is a defamation suit or defamation-like claims against the users who had criticized the company uh uh, Glassdoor objects uh, to the subpoena on free speech grounds, uh, and um, Glassdoor then moves to compel compliance with the subpoena, um, and but doesn't provide any evidence uh, showing that what was false. Uh, the trial court doesn't reach a question of evidence because it decides that the posts were really more opinion than fact and therefore not actionable. And uh, ZL Technologies Appeals, um, Glassdoor raises the First Amendment right to speak anonymously, says not only is it not actionable, but they didn't submit any evidence, and then the, the issue is joined. We filed an amicus brief agreeing with Glassdoor, but also urging that in addition to having to present evidence, plaintiffs should have to show uh, that their interests, uh, their rights, outweigh the interest in remaining anonymous, and this Court of Appeal agrees with Glassdoor on requiring evidence, but does not agree with Glassdoor either, or does not ag- agree either, I should say. With our argument that there's a balancing stage after evidence is presented, but also doesn't agree with Glassdoor's contention and the ruling of the trial court below that the statements were exclusively opinion and that therefore not subject to litigation under the defamation laws. The Court of Appeals sends the case back for consideration of whether ZL Technologies can present evidence in support of its claims.
0: Just to, to parse that out just a, a bit, as you say, there's a, a few different th- types of standards right. that could could be applied. There's some um, persuasive but not direct authority here within our own state uh, from the 6th the Appellate District, uh, Krinsky versus Doe. Right number six case um, that essentially just requires the plaintiff make a prima facie showing, I think, maybe a few other things. But then the, the the balancing that you and Public Citizen advocated that the court should require, essentially the plaintiff showing that the equities weigh in their favor to, to know the anonymous users, that comes from a case out, from outside of California, right, the, the, the dendrite decision? Yeah, there
1: are several decisions of state appellate and both intermediate appellate courts like the california court of appeal uh... and by state supreme courts for that matter uh... the intermediate appellate court in new jersey is the granddaddy of them all decided this issue in in two thousand one and uh... applied a balancing stage after evidence of the wrongdoing was presented and a number of courts in other states have said similarly uh, you know, New Hampshire Supreme Court is one of them. Uh, the Kentucky Supreme Court is another. uh The Arizona Court of Appeal is another. Uh the, You would really say that's the majority rule of the dozen or so state appellate courts that have addressed the issue. But there's a minority of which California remains a part, which says that once the plaintiff makes a prima facie showing, uh, that that's sufficient to get the plaintiff uh, the disclosure that it seeks.
0: Okay, and that, that comes from that Krinsky case. You, you said that the that, court of that, Appe- Yeah, the
1: California Court of Appeal said that in the Krinsky case, the, the, that is, say, the court of appeal for the 6th District, uh, the first uh, state appellate court to uh, embrace that approach while rejecting the balancing stage was the Delaware Supreme Court in Cahill, or actually it was Doe v. Cahill.
0: Okay, maybe correct me if I'm reading this wrong, but it seems like there is a a bit more required from Krinsky than just a prima facie showing... They have
1: to lay out the details. They have to say what the allegedly actionable words were. They have to articulate the legal claim uh, that makes those words actionable. Uh, They have to show that they have a valid claim um, based on those words. That is, to say, a legally valid claim, you might say a demur or a motion to dismiss standard. Uh, and of course, there has to be notice to the uh, online users that their anonymity is risked, so that regardless of whether the platform argues for their rights, so that, that they have their own right to argue for their uh, right to remain anonymous.
0: In addition to that, is there any showing required from the plaintiff uh, regarding falsity? So,
1: I mean, the question is uh, under, uh, depending on what the cause of action is, it might be that if it's a defamation claim, certainly falsity has to be shown. Um, depending on the type of defamation claim, it may be that damages or injury has to be shown in addition to falsity. I mean, there are certainly. C- claims that can be brought against uh, online speech that don't involve the need to show falsity. For example, if the argument is that there's a breach of a non-disclosure agreement, which is what the issue was in the Machine Zone case over in the Sixth uh, District of the Court of Appeal, or you know, if there's a non-disparagement clause, a valid non-disparagement clause in the employment agreement. Uh, it really depends. The showing that has to be made depends on what the elements of the cause of action are.
0: Okay, but the, the showing at that stage is greater than the showing you need to show in the underlying matter where to, to go to trial?
1: Well, it's a summary judgment-like standard. So uh, I think you'd say that the showing is what you would need to show in order to survive a motion for summary judgment and therefore get to trial. S- saying that in all recognition of the fact that I'm not particularly up on California procedure <laughs> sure. and I might be characterizing it
0: wrong. Uh, of course, speaking to you from Washington, D.C. here, um, what uh, what did the court say for just the reason why it didn't feel the equitable balancing, that last step, uh, needed to be worked in here, if that's from the Tentrate uh, well, case? Well, my
1: recollection of what the Court of Appeal said is once you decide that it has a defensible cause of action, that's supported by evidence, it's not appropriate to prevent the plaintiff from getting to trial. That you shouldn't deny them the ability to bring forward a cause of action if they have evidence that would be sufficient to get them to trial. To which my response would be, it's worth having an equitable balancing because there are different degrees of evidence that might be presented and if for example you have an online user who faces a real threat of retaliation from being identified you might require a greater factual showing.
0: Yeah, I I do want to kind of tease out the different types of circumstances and the different sorts of equities that different parties can identify when they might be doing that balancing. So there, as you're saying, could be more vulnerable potential defendants that really do need anonymity and perhaps ones where the, the value of their yeah, anonymity is high. As opposed to
1: defendants where uh, yeah, it's more a matter of principle to them to remain anonymous. Former employee versus current employee, or uh, former employee who no longer works in the same industry, and so is not, no, so their employer is not vulnerable to pressure from uh, the uh, plaintiff uh, employer. Um, you know, there are a variety of circumstances. Person whose speech discloses highly personal facts about themselves. Uh, you often have this in the Yelp context, for example, where there might be a statement about a particular business which is pretty inconsequential personal, uh, personally, but the same person might have done a review of a doctor that reveals that the person has had a very sensitive uh, medical uh, procedure done on themselves, and once they're identified as having sort of criticized the bicycle shop, they were also identified as the person who also said this thing about themselves in reviewing a doctor.
0: Okay, so the California court here did not adopt that that balancing test. I right. my,
1: my view is that the California Court of Appeal didn't think carefully enough about the various circumstances which are presented in the, the complete range of cases. Um Uh, It may well be that in this context there wasn't a significant danger of retaliation, but in in adopting a standard which is going to govern employer review or reviews of employers more generally, uh, basically any case that can come up in the First District Court of Appeal, uh, which relates uh, not only to reviews on a glass door, but reviews on, for example, Yelp, which is located in San Francisco. Um, I just think the Court of Appeal should have been more sensitive to the kinds of equities that might be at stake in other cases. It's too bad that they weren't.
0: Why, why do you think that the Dendrite standard sets the the balance in, in the right place? Is it because of the perhaps a certain instances in which, as you say, anonymity might be of more value to the party or there free are speech might be of more instances value? Where,
1: And there actually are some instances uh, in which the First Amendment right is uh, much less uh, and the speech interest is less substantial. I mean, you take a look, for example, at the downloading cases where the issue is whether somebody has posted uh or, or made available copyrighted songs. There's a minor First Amendment interest in doing that, but it's not a very substantial one. Uh, and those are actually instances in which the balancing test cuts against the anonymous defendant and in favor of the uh, plaintiff.
0: Yeah, I'm just pre- presenting perhaps the strongest argument on, on the other side here. W- what do you think that uh, parties like ZL Technologies, these companies, uh, when they make their arguments as to why they should get the identities of these folks, what's their sort of strongest uh, claim? Well, I think they the best
1: ar- I think the best argument is if I've satisfied the summary judgment standard – why shouldn't I be able to have redress of my grievances by going forward with discovery and having the opportunity to get to trial? I, mean, I, I, I don't deny that that's a powerful argument. Sure.
0: Okay. Well, maybe just to wrap up, it sounds like this is a, a bit of an evolving area of law. Do you expect that uh, this question could reach, I guess, the California Supreme Court or for it to continue to kind of percolate through uh, courts you around know, the country? I, I
1: don't know whether either side is going to seek review uh, of this case in the California Supreme Court. I think either one could because uh, ZL Technologies lost on the question of whether it's going to have to present evidence below, but Glassdoor lost on the opinion question. Uh, either side, I think, could seek discretionary review. You, you, you'll have to ask uh, uh, Bill Frommel and the folks from Kerr-Wagstaff what their intentions
0: are. I suppose maybe just one last one uh, dealing with the, the competing equities here. I know there will be arguments made that some forms of online anonymous speech could encourage folks to perhaps say things they wouldn't otherwise say were their identities known. And I guess that can cut both ways, either being a good thing uh, or a bad
1: thing. It certainly can be good and can be bad. People say things online that they would never say to somebody else's face and that they wouldn't say, uh, you know, not everybody would play the Scaramucci uh, if their names were known.
0: Right.
1: And it's certainly true that online anonymity encourages the anonymous Scaramuccis. Right. It makes it socially more socially easier for people to misbehave online. My view is that. Uh, Encouraging whistleblowers and encouraging honest criticism by people who might, other, might other, not otherwise put their facts in the marketplace of ideas um, is of sufficient value that it outweighs that concern. You
0: argue contrary. Always lots of, lots of balancing to be to be done in these sorts of contexts. Um, so I'm sure more yes. to come in future cases. For now, Paul Allen Levy, a public citizen. Thanks very much for being on the podcast to talk about it. I appreciate it. You bet. Much was made of the U.S. Supreme Court's denial of cert in the recent Second Amendment case of Peruda v. San Diego County, decided by the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals, which found permissible certain regulatory requirements placed between individuals and their ability to carry firearms in public. Another similar case has arisen from the D.C. Circuit, in which there the appeals court struck down, regulation requiring some sort of special showing by individuals seeking to carry firearms in public. Here now to tell us about that ruling and what it augurs for potential SCOTUS review down the line, we have David Kopel, a wearer of many hats. He's the research director for the Independence Institute in Colorado, an associate policy analyst for the Cato Institute, and a professor at Denver University. Mr. Kopel, welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you for having me. So maybe we can start out talking about some some history around the uh, the laws in D.C. regarding handguns. I know that there are kind of two separate histories that we'll, we'll get into, one just sort of the background and the history behind uh, the laws here in the district, but then also, as uh, you talk about in your, your piece, the broader Anglo-American history of the laws surrounding the right to possess and, and carry firearms in public. Um, right. So we'll we'll get a bit into both and maybe talking about the laws in D.C. So obviously that, the case most folks will have known about is the D.C. versus Heller decision, and 2008, uh, a bellwether case. Talk me about what the law had been prior to that case and then uh, sort of after that ruling. That case was not about public carry, but rather possession in, in the home, correct?
2: Yeah, Yes. Yeah. In, in the Heller opinion, the Supreme Court talked about lots of things other than just the home. that That's exactly right. The particular re- relief that uh, Dick Heller was looking for. He was a uh, uh, professional security guard guarding uh, the Federal Judicial Center, who, who carried a gun by day for his job uh, protecting the judiciary, but wasn't allowed to own a gun in his own apartment uh, at home, um, which was in a quite dangerous neighborhood and uh, across the street from a uh, notorious housing project with a lot of violent crime. So D.C. had a law that said, well, you can't have any guns in the city unless they're registered, and nobody can register any handguns uh secondly dc said for guns you do own like which might be a grandfathered handgun before the uh 1976 ban went into effect or uh, a rifle or a, a shotgun you can't have those in a functional state uh at home they have to be either locked up or disassembled and even in a case of self defense uh you can't make your firearm in the home uh functional to use it for self defense and then the third law that was challenged was DC's, uh, gun carry licensing statute, which said you need a license in order to carry a gun, and nobody was ever issued a license. Um, and that licensing requirement even applied to carrying a gun from one room to another within your own house. So if you had a, you know, a disassembled shotgun and you wanted to clean it at home, uh, to you know take it from your bedroom closet to the down to the uh, your workshop to clean it. Uh, you'd need a carry permit, and nobody was ever issued a carry permit. So the Supreme Court said the handgun ban violates the Second Amendment. The uh, ban on having a functional firearm in your home for self-defense violates the Second Amendment. And for the the carry permit, uh, the district had said, well, you know if if you strike this handgun ban, we'll give Heller a permit. Uh, to carry the handgun within his own home, and D.C. said, well, and, and the Supreme Court said, well, in light of that, we assume that he'll get the relief that he's seeking, uh, so we don't need to get into that further. Once the Heller decision was handed down, the District Council modified its laws to set up a system to allow for handgun registration, and it repealed the requirement that to carry a gun within your own home, you had to have a permit, and made no provision. For any other uh, lawful carrying. So under the D.C. laws that existed by September of 2008, you didn't need to carry a permit to carry within your own home and you couldn't even apply for a permit uh, to carry outside your home. So that that sets the stage for the, the litigation
0: we're about to talk about. So then walk me through how you get from, from that state of, of play there into these illegal challenges that revolve then around the ability to carry outside of the home.
2: So in, in 2009, Alan Gura, who was the winning attorney in the Heller case, brought a lawsuit called Palmer versus District of Columbia, challenging the complete ban on carry outside the home. That This was a case that was filed in the fall of 2009, and after summary judgment motion, cross motions for summary judgment were filed and the uh, case had been heard on oral argument, uh, the district judge in the, for the federal district court for the District of Columbia retired. and so The case moved into limbo for 18 months. And apparently the district court down there was, was awfully shorthanded. So finally, after 18 months, a judge from the Northern District of New York, uh, in Syracuse, was assigned to hear the case. So they had oral arguments again, and the case went by a year without resolution. And then uh, Gura filed a petition for a writ of mandamus to the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals uh, saying, dear Circuit Court, would you please order the district judge to decide this case? Uh, the D.C. Circuit said, well, no, you know, we're, we're only supposed to issue mandamus in egregious cases and uh, we agree a four year delay is kind of long uh but it's it's not so egregious that mandamus is proper well finally in 2014 the uh designated district judge did hand down an opinion and he ruled that the complete ban on uh carry was unconstitutional so the district of columbia did two things first of all they filed an appeal with the dc circuit and but then they withdrew that appeal and instead enacted uh, a law similar to say that of uh, Maryland which is you can get a permit to carry but only if you're special you have to have a good reason and good reason was defined to mean you have a special need different from the public in general you know there are particular criminal threats against you which are documented or you've been criminally attacked. So you've got to show some, you're at some risk different from the general risk, uh, suffered by the public. Gura asked the district judge to hold DC in contempt for doing that because it did contradict, the, the DC ordinance clearly contradicted the, the judge's opinion that there is a general right to carry for people overall, not just for special people. Um uh, but he, he didn't issue a contempt order and so then Gura brought a new lawsuit um, called Wren, W-R-E-N-N, versus District of Columbia. And he also brought a second case in front of a different dis- district judge uh, with the plaintiffs of a guy named Matthew Grace and uh, Pink Pistols, which is a uh, gay rights organization that, that focuses on the, the right to keep and bear arms. Gura won the case in the, again, the, the new case, um, and then on appeal to the D.C. Circuit, the D.C. Circuit said, well, uh, the problem with this is the judge who was sitting by designation, he was fine to decide the first case, the Palmer case, but he really shouldn't have been assigned the second case, the, the new Wren case. And so he didn't have jurisdiction, and so therefore we don't have jurisdiction, so go ahead and start over in another court. So the, the Wren and the Palmer cases went forward. uh with one, one win for the uh, Gura and one loss for Gura in the district court. And then finally, they did get to the D.C. Circuit. They were consolidated, and on uh, Monday, they were decided on the merits.
0: As We'll, we'll get into more of that requirement that that a person show um, some sort of special reason why they need to, to carry was, was struck down. Um, but before we get into the opinion, I, I wanted to ask you how, how good of a reason, in fact, did, did a person need to show? Uh, you know, I, I know state-by-state state laws can vary, and so the kind of good reason or good cause requirement seems to be the sort of thing that has come up in other states, including our own, I believe, in the, the recent case of Peruta versus San Diego um, that many of our listeners will be familiar with. In which case, sought cert before the U.S. Supreme Court was denied. It uh, a, a good cause requirement for a public carry license uh, was deemed okay by the Ninth Circuit. Are, are those laws similar at all, or is the the showing needed in D.C. to get a, a permit greater? How how good of a good reason do you do you need, or did or did you need?
2: Well, the, the, the difference is the the California the California statute, which says, you know, to get a carry permit, you know, you have to have a background check and safety training, like like a lot of other states do, um, also said you have to have a good reason. And when there was a challenge to that, as you said in, in, in involving that in the Peruda case, the plaintiffs did not challenge the good reason statutory requirement. They simply challenged how the uh, San Diego County and Yolo County sheriffs were applying that good reason requirement, which was you don't get a permit unless you've got some special need. So the Peruta case involved a challenge to the sheriff's application of that. Now, In in most California counties today, as in most of the rest of the country, a law-abiding adult who passes the fingerprint-based background check and the safety training class, most California sheriffs treat the desire to exercise one's constitutional right to keep and bear arms for lawful self-defense as a pretty good reason. Uh, but there are definitely a minority, including San Diego, Los Angeles, San Francisco, and, and some up, YOLO, Alameda, uh, where that's not considered a good enough reason. So the highly restrictive application by a, by some California sheriffs is similar to what the D.C. Uh, ordinance uh, explicitly said.
0: Then maybe getting into the ruling here, uh, cases involving the Second Amendment sort of necessarily will tend to delve into uh, English history and, and common law and talk about the rights as they existed, um, you know, predating the United States, uh, perhaps back all the way to the, the Magna Carta days. Uh, and, and arguments were had over some of that history here with folks on, on either side, D.C., and the uh, plaintiffs or petitioners here uh, arguing that the history could be read to kind of point both directions. Can you walk me through the different arguments that were made by the different sides based on that uh, Anglo-American uh, history? Sure.
2: In 1328, as William Faulkner said, the past isn't uh, dead, it's not even past. That's definitely true for uh, legal history, especially involving constitutional rights and and the right to arms. In 1328, King Edward III uh, created a statute called the Statute of Northampton, saying nobody without the king's permission uh, can carry arms in marketplaces, fairs, anywhere around the king's servants, or in no part elsewhere. And the legal history of how that was applied is somewhat murky, but there's some evidence suggesting there was a pretty restrictive application of it, um, at least initially. But by the 1600s, uh, people were generally ignoring it. And in a, in a court case in the early 1680s, the the court said uh, the, the case was called Sir John Knight. Uh, the statute seems to have gone into desuetude, you know, which basically mm-hmm. it's it's withered away and become almost nothing from from disuse. But then the court said, you know, we, we can still apply it when uh, somebody is carrying in malo animo, you know, with a with an evil intention, and then not long after the uh, in 1689 the English Bill of Rights was enacted uh guaranteeing the the right of protestants about 98% of the population uh to possess arms for for their defense so in the dc cases there were amicus briefs and arguments back and forth about what all of this meant and i was a uh participant in uh, with other legal historians on that and our view was that Whatever the statute of Northampton had was applied in 1400, clearly by the time of the English Bill of Rights, uh, the right to carry arms, uh, was recognized and was likewise recognized, um, in the United States. And there, you know, there were, uh, another, other legal historians, most notably a guy named uh, Patrick Charles, um, argued to the contrary the dc circuit opinion in the case said you know what on this thing for every hour, for every point there's a counterpoint but said the dc circuit we don't really have to decide this legal history dispute because the heller opinion has already decided it and the heller case and of course it involved lots of briefing on english legal history too on both sides and it said heller said by the 181689 english bill of rights included a right to carry arms for confrontation so once the Supreme Court decides the legal history, says the D.C. Circuit, uh, that's uh, just about that's conclusive on us,
0: and, there, and therefore there is a right to carry. I just wanted to flag one other bit of the historical argument here from the D.C. side, talking about uh, 19th century American laws uh, that were called surety of the peace statutes. Um, what what are the? I hadn't ever stumbled upon that phrase or, or those before. What are those, and how do they uh, fold in here?
2: Okay, so surety of the peace is a long-standing concept in uh, Anglo-American law, which says, you know, basically, if, if you're doing something which gives cause for concern, you can be required to post a bond for good behavior. So, um, about eight states in the uh, early to mid-19th century enacted surety of the peace statutes specifically relating to carrying arms. What the statute said was, well, yeah, people presume that people could carry in general. It didn't restrict carrying. But it said if, if somebody, let's say uh, you're carrying and somebody in your town thinks you are uh, likely to cause a breach of the peace, well, they can bring a civil case, and if they prove the case in, in court, you know, the, 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 this guy kind of looks like he might cause a breach of the peace sometime, mm-hmm. then the court could order you to post bond for good behavior. And then after that, you could go right on carry. And, but of course, if you did cause a breach of the peace, uh, then, then you'd forfeit your bond. And presumably, you could be criminally prosecuted, depending on the, the nature of the breach of the peace. So that was what the statute said. And some Advocates like uh, Saul Cornell, who's a history professor at Fordham, had come up with this reading of the statute that says, "Oh, this was a general ban uh, on carry unless you have a special need for self-defense," which is just not what the statute says. And the D.C. Circuit, I, I think, in a, in a straightforward application of the the only plausible reading of the statute, was of course this is this was not a general ban on carry; it was a requirement that people who are acting sketchy when they carry, uh, can be required to post a bond for good behavior.
0: Right. Okay, now you said uh, in addressing the different historical arguments, the D.C. Circuit said it didn't really need to do a whole lot of determinative determinative finding because the, the Heller Court had really discerned what was necessary to know about that historical basis. Uh, but of course, as you mentioned, and correct me if I'm wrong, but the Heller Court pretty explicitly said it, it wasn't holding beyond the right to hold a a handgun within the home. So I guess the the D.C. Circuit must have done some work that the Heller court did not do. How did they reach their conclusion uh, there then?
2: I wouldn't say that Heller explicitly said it just like you did, but of course the the holding in the case, the narrowly defined, was only about the home because that was the only relief that Dick Heller was seeking. He wanted to be able to register a handgun and possess it in a functional state in his home. So that's what the holding was. But of course, this was the first time the Supreme Court had addressed the Second Amendment in a major way since 1939. And along the way they talked about a lot of other issues, which you could say was dicta, but as the lower federal courts uh, have said over and over, uh, recent Supreme Court dicta is just about as binding on us as a holding. So for example, the Supreme Court in Heller said, well, it's okay to ban gun possession uh, for convicted felons and the mentally ill. Now, that was obviously dicta because Heller wasn't a convicted felon or mentally ill, but lower courts have followed that. And when people who have been barred for, from possessing guns for, for mental illness or felony convictions have raised Second Amendment issues, the court, lower courts say, well, you know, Heller did say that this is okay. And even though it was dicta, uh, we think that's pretty authoritative for us, and so the uh, bans on convicted felons and the mentally ill are okay. And so likewise, the court, partly in its uh, explication of what does it mean to keep and bear arms, said that bearing arms means carrying guns for uh, purposes of confrontation. And it, among the things the court said, the, the court uh said this doesn't cast doubt, the the Heller opinion, on long-standing, certain long-standing gun controls, such as laws against carrying concealed guns, which cited a bunch of 19th century cases, which said the right to arms in either the Second Amendment or sometimes in state constitutions uh, definitely includes the right to carry guns, but the legislature can prohibit carrying concealed and require you to carry openly. And likewise said the Heller court, uh, this doesn't mean you can carry guns in sensitive places, such as schools and government buildings. Well, that, that's, uh, the exception that proves the rule. If there's, if there were no right to carry at all, then there would be no point in enumerating exceptions, like sensitive places, uh, from the right to carry. Just as if, if people, if there were no individual right to arms at all, as was contended by some people before Heller, uh, then there would be no need to call out an exemption uh, for felons and the mentally ill. So uh, a vast amount of language in Heller says there is a general right to carry arms in public, okay. subject to various controls and rest- restrictions. But the, there, there's a right that's there, although albeit not an unlimited right.
0: Okay, um, this is a two-one opinion. Could you walk me through a bit of the the dissent and and what the the principal arguments were uh, in, in in that?
2: Well, the dissent would say, the the majority said, the right to keep and bear, the right to bear arms is just as much a part of the core of the Second Amendment as the right to keep arms. And so when you have a, a law that prohibits 99% of the population from exercising the right, that's obviously unconstitutional. The dissent uh, written by Judge Henderson, who was actually a dissenter in the uh, case that became Heller in the Supreme Court, she would have said that there's no right of people in D.C. to own guns at all. Um, obviously, Heller ruled the other way. Um, Judge Henderson said, no, the right to, to carry guns, that's very far from the core of the Second Amendment. The Second Amendment's really... Uh, the core is about the home. and So when, when you're carrying, you're very far from the, the core right. And so the Judicial review of it should be at most under a standard called intermediate scrutiny, which is in between rational basis, which is almost anything's okay, and strict scrutiny, which is a passable test, but it, it's it's a, ch- it's a it's a tough one to pass. Uh, she would have gone for intermediate scrutiny and a loose version of that, and she said basically the fact that the D.C. council thought that banning almost the entire population from being able to exercise the right to bear arms would improve public safety, uh, that that's that's enough support uh, for courts to uphold it. and They should de-
0: defer to the, uh, the legislature. One other point on the sort of the constitutional law formulas that get applied here. I think you noted that the majority doesn't really apply a specific standard. They, they aren't using strict scrutiny here, kind of like the court and Heller also didn't set a specific level of scrutiny they were applying. Is that right?
2: Well that that that's right, because we as law students are taught, you know, there's we in modern days, since the seventies or so, have this sort of three tiers of, of scrutiny. So uh strict scrutiny, intermediate scrutiny, and then rational basis. But there are some things where you don't need to get into scrutiny. For for example, if a uh law said it is uh illegal to criticize the President, but it's perfectly fine to praise the President, that would be an example of viewpoint discrimination. And viewpoint discrimination, in general, as a First Amendment matter, is categorically unconstitutional. The judge isn't going to ask the government to say, well, you can we'll we uphold this law if you can prove it past a strict scrutiny by showing there's a compelling state interest it's narrowly tailored, it's less restrictive means, all that kind of stuff, a court wouldn't even bother with that. Or likewise, if you enacted a statute that facially discriminated on the basis of religion. um, Muslims are not allowed to hold public office in this city. The government attorney wouldn't be given the chance to show, well, we can pass a balancing test because we have really important government interest on one side. uh, you know, there's no less restrictive means to do it. That would just be held categorically unconstitutional. And likewise, as the D.C. Circuit said, the complete ban on handguns in Heller was categorically unconstitutional. When you obliterate a right, that the government doesn't get to obliterate a right ever. It may be able to restrict a right somewhat under this three-tier system of scrutiny, but they can't wipe out the right entirely. And so when you wiped out the right to possess handguns, that was it. No need to the, the balancing tests of the three tiers of scrutiny. And the D.C. Circuit said same thing, uh, following Heller principles uh, for the right to carry. You, you've wiped out the right for almost the entire D.C. population, the right to bear arms. And so, and, end of story. It's, it's, as the court said, there, there's very few gun control laws that would ever be categorically unconstitutional. Uh, but this, this happens to be one of
0: them. Okay, maybe yeah, starting to to wrap up. I, I wanted to assess the the landscape of Second Amendment jurisprudence out there in the in the different circuits. Maybe specifically as to as to this case in the D.C. Circuit, and then in in the Ninth Circuit with the Peruda case. We mentioned how those. The two different laws, the good cause requirements and the different, the state and the Washington DC were a bit different. Um, do these two, can these kind of two cases coexist harmoniously? Do they conflict? If, you know, would the California good cause requirement work within the, the DC circuit? Do you think under this rule, as you said, it wasn't quite as restrictive as the DC law? Or do you think these cases represent uh, more of a conflict and perhaps uh, something amounting to a bit of a, a circuit split on this, this question? You could argue there's no circuit split because the,
2: the, the, the Peruda on banc decision, within its four corners, takes this very artificial and deliberately blinkered approach of saying this case is only about concealed carry licensing, and there's clearly no, you know, concealed carry per se is definitely not a constitutional right. I mean, Heller said that, and, you know, the, no, nobody disagrees with that. And according to the Peruda en banc majority, that's all we're looking at. You know, no, no other issue here. The dissenters in Peruda said, this is ridiculous. Of course, you know, if, if California wants to ban concealed carry, they can. But you've got to take into account that they've also banned open carry. And so the fact that nobody can get a concealed carry permit in, Cali- in some places in California, or hardly anybody can, has to be considered in light of the fact that That getting a concealed carry license is the only way people can carry at all, since other California statutes have more or less uh, prohibited open carry as well. You know, and and that, by the way, I mean, if if DC wanted to to say we're going to ban concealed carry, but we'll issue licenses for open carry, that would clearly be uh, a lawful approach for them to take. You know, one, one of the differences between the 19th century cases that the Supreme Court and Heller cited with a lot of approval was at the time open carry was very much socially favored, and concealed carry was thought as a rather sneaky thing to do. You know, why would you be carry concealed unless you were trying to sneak up on somebody? I, I think these days the sensibility is more, you know, at least according to opinion polls, oh, it's perfectly fine if you, if you get a license and go through a process uh, to carry a gun for protection. But there's a a lot of people would prefer that it be concealed carry. You know, you could you go to a, a mall in shopping mall in Portland, uh, with say three thousand people in the mall at any given time, I guarantee you there's gonna be dozens or more people who are lawfully carrying under Oregon law with their concealed carry permit. You know, you you could force them to open carry, but our I think our sensibilities are more now we, we'd rather have them concealed carry uh, just because, you know, there are people who have a lot of fears or phobias or just dislike about guns. And in r- respect to their sensibilities and social harmony, uh, we'll have the people who are carrying
0: do it concealed so these other people don't get upset about it. What do you think the, the future of this this case might look like? As you said, the, the Peruta decision was an, an, an on-bunk one. Uh, do you think that an uh, on-bunk DC circuit might take a look at this case, um, or that it might eventually wind its way up to the Supreme Court, which just at the end of, of last term kind of um, demurred on opportunities to, as you said, address address this this issue head-on. What uh, do, do you think? Eventually, that it will need to, and could this be the the vehicle for that?
2: I think I, either of those are are definitely possible. DC has not uh, the DC uh, city attor- attorney general has not announced. Uh, the plans for the next step um the ever ever since the case that became heller in 2007 um was denied on banc review by the dc circuit the dc circuit has never granted an on banc on a on a second amendment case um so but you know the the personnel are changing and sometimes these votes are close so so that's on banc is certainly possible and if D.C. appeal to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court might take it. They're, one of the things that, that helps in a cert petition is you are a government whose law was declared unconstitutional. That, that increases the possibility of cert. You know, which brings us back to the Heller case. Back in, in 2007, after D.C. lost on, on the handgun ban in the D.C. circuit, the gun control groups like the, the Brady campaign strongly urged D.C. just to change its law suck it up, and set up some system where people would be able to own handguns, um, rather than appealing to the U.S. Supreme Court, because the, uh, the gun control groups were very justifiably, as it turned out, uh, terrified of the possibility of the Supreme Court taking a major gun case and issuing a big ruling affirming that the Second Amendment is a major uh, important individual right and that handgun bans are prohibited. Um, The the gun control groups would have rather just taken the loss in D.C. and not taken the risk of a national precedent. So that that conversation could perhaps go on again. You know, if D.C. appeals for cert, they have a respectable chance of getting it, um, but also a respectable chance of not only losing their case, uh, but of creating binding national precedent uh, for the Uh, eight states which currently don't have a process, a statewide process, by which law-abiding trained adults can get handgun carry permits uh, after going through background checks and safety training.
0: I know if this were added to the docket, uh, next term it would certainly add to what's already shaping up to be a pretty compelling one, Uh, but we'll leave it there for now. uh, David Copel, of the Independence Institute and University of Denver, Uh, thanks very much for being on the podcast. I appreciate it.
2: Great, thank you for having me.
0: And with that, our program for July 28th is complete. Thanks to, to both my guests, David Copel and Paul Levy. And thank you for tuning in. It's much appreciated. It's morning, Brian Cardile. Look forward to speaking to you next Friday. Have a great week.